Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today we'll explore a pair of fun-loving, offbeat destinations from kangaroos to carnival. It's Australia and New Orleans. First, a pair of experts are joining us to tell us all about Australia, from its dynamic cities and stunning coastline to the splendid isolation of the outback and the underwater marvels of the Great Barrier Reef. The coastline is an absolute stunner. They've got that frontier spirit that we have, but with a dose of something zany, and we can conquer whatever, and we're going to have a good time doing it. Then, to join in on the carnival celebrations going on all over the world, we'll head to the biggest party of them all, New Orleans and Mardi Gras. In the Big Easy, tourism is nearing pre-Katrina levels, but the city still has a long way to go before it's fully back to normal. Even so, New Orleans has its arms wide open for visitors to enjoy this year's party. We'll find out why Mardi Gras is so important to the city's identity and how the festivities are big enough to include fun for all ages. Stay with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. We're commemorating two big celebrations today on Travel with Rick Steves. For Australia Day, we're getting an overview of the big country down under from a pair of Aussie-loving, lonely planet editors. And later, we'll get into the spirit of Mardi Gras in New Orleans as the city continues to recover both economically and emotionally from the devastation that Hurricane Katrina brought two and a half years ago. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Time to go down under. And today we're going down under with a couple of experts on Australia. We've got uh, Don George in the studio. Don is uh, the global travel editor for Lonely Planet. Fifteen years he was the travel editor of the San Francisco Chronicle and a man who writes the Lonely Planet guidebook to Australia or contributes mightily to this uh, brick of a guidebook, a thousand-page manual on Australia, Charles Rawlings Way. Charles, thanks for joining us. Hi, great to be here. Charles is uh, joining us from Melbourne, Australia. That's correct, yep. And uh, Don, thanks for being in the studio. Great to be here, Rick. Australia. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm a Europhile, and to me, Australia, frankly, it seems like uh, Europe without all the great history. It's a vast expanses and a lot of transplanted Europeans. Uh, what is it about Australia that, that keeps so many people going there and so many people just raving about it? Well, first of all, it's an extraordinary natural treasure house. The The variety of scenery is fantastic. You've got the Great Barrier Reef, which is one of the treasures of the world in terms of underwater life. You've got the Outback, which just extends and extends as far as I can see. And then suddenly in the middle of it, you've got Uluru. You've got aboriginal rock paintings up in the north and beautiful coastal drives along both coasts. So it's a spectacular scenery, really spectacular. And then the people are incredibly gregarious and warm and outgoing and fun-loving. So I think the visitors appreciate both of those aspects of Australia. The way you paint it, it sounds very diverse and very appealing. <laughs> hey, we got an email from Bill in Boston. Uh, Bill asks, uh, what do you recommend for a two-week first-timers trip itinerary? We enjoy experiencing local culture and meeting people as opposed to being gawking tourists on a big bus. How does uh, an American thinking of taking a a vacation through Australia, sort through all the options. We're notorious for having the shortest vacations in the rich world. Let's say you got two or three weeks. Charles, how do you sort through the, the wonders of Australia, and what do you recommend for a greatest hits couple weeks in Australia? Well, as you suggest, it's an enormous country. It's roughly the same size as the United States, but with only 20 million people spread across the whole thing, which is perhaps the size of New York and L.A. put together, but you know, distributed in little pockets around the coast largely. A common mistake that travellers make when they come to Australia is to think that they can uh, cover a lot of distance in quick time, but really the, the, the size of the place is prohibitive. So I would suggest if you only had two weeks, you'd perhaps get a hit of urban Australia, uh, head to Sydney, which is Australia's oldest city, and then um, perhaps do some outback stuff, go to uh, Uluru in central Australia. I would absolutely recommend you fly into Sydney, spend three days there, go to Melbourne, spend three days there, go up the coast to the Great Barrier Reef, spend two or three days there, get inland to the outback. If you have uh, time, get up to Kakadu National Park up in the far north, and you will have seen not all of Australia by any means, but the best of Australia, the highlights of Australia that way. And certainly go out of your way to interact with the local people because... 
while we've been talking about the spectacular scenery there, which is truly spectacular, the people are just as spectacular. They're so friendly and outgoing. I'm speaking with Don George and Charles Rawlings Way. These men uh, contribute to the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Australia. Charles is coming to us from Melbourne, Australia, and uh, Don is right here in our studios in the Seattle area. When you're thinking about Australia, famous for the uh, original settlers from Europe, uh, what England had all these convicts, didn't want to kill them, so they just sent them down to Australia. What kind of uh, sightseeing can you weave into your plan that will let you check out the uh, European heritage of Australia? Well, the two oldest cities are Sydney, which was settled first in uh, 1788. Captain Cook discovered, as it said, uh, Australia around then, and it became a a convict colony. Uh, Tasmania, which is an island uh, about the size of Scotland off the south coast of the mainland, was the second community that was developed, again, as a convict colony. The town of Hobart, which is where I grew up, has fantastic convict heritage in terms of its architecture. So that's definitely worth a visit. Tasmania is a fascinating place, really. Yeah, tell me about Tasmania. Australia feels like far away, and Tasmania is far, far away. It is. Most people, all they know about Tasmania is the Tasmanian uh, devil, (laughs) as featured in the cartoon. (laughs) True, they are ferocious animals, but they don't don't spin around like tornadoes. (laughs) Yeah, Tasmania, it's unique. It's, it's been isolated for a long time, and it, it does have a crop of species that are found nowhere else, such as the Tasmanian devil. There are vast tracts of Tasmania which have no roads, uh, no towns, completely isolated. The southwest corner uh, has some fantastic walks through that wilderness, which I would highly recommend if anyone's uh, into hiking. The east coast of Tasmania is quite dry. It has some fantastic beaches. Uh, national parks like Frasenay National Park, defined by a red granite, which is uh, also unique. So the rocks and the the cliffs take on a a reddish-pinkish hue. And as I mentioned, Tasmania in the south is uh, the capital. The other major city is Launceston in the north, which is a Victorian city, has some really gracious streets and uh, established parks. So it does have this European culture overlaid over the indigenous, just like in the United States, the Europeans invaded and uh, the indigenous people pretty much put down. Well, the Aboriginal people, in some ways, it's fairly similar to the American Indians. They were mistreated by the early European settlers. They were displaced. Recently, there's been much more attention paid to Aboriginal culture. The Aboriginals have regained tracts of land that they lost. There's fantastic now museum displays devoted to Aboriginal art, uh, Aboriginal dance is gaining new popularity, Aboriginal music. So there's a certain resurgence of Aboriginal culture. Uh, At the same time, there are pockets of Aboriginals that are are pretty depressing to go visit because you feel like they've they've lost their sense of cultural integrity. So it's very much a mixed scene right now. How do you best appreciate the uh, Aboriginal culture? Where are the best museums? Where are the best culture shows? Is it pretty much on stage that you're going to be experiencing this? Some of it is on stage, but I would also very much encourage people to get into the outback, which is where the real Aboriginal culture still thrives. The first place you've got to go is Uluru, Ayers Rock, um, the vast red rock monolith out in the middle of the outback where there are indigenous guides who will take you around and explain some of the meaning of the different shapes that you'll see in the rock. It's a truly transformative experience to stand there and watch the sunrise fire up that rock as if lighting it from within. It's it's this earth energy coursing through this vast rock. It's extraordinary. Now, if you take an aboriginal mindset and you look at this glowing, massive rock on what is just a, a vast plain, right? Right. You can see that it's a spiritual spot for those people. The gods live there. The There's gods no live question there. about it. And as a traveler, it is, what would you say, a transforming experience? Yes. Don, you called it Uluru. I grew up thinking it of as Ayers Rock. Is that the new politically correct thing now to call certain things with their... Right. Their Aboriginal names. The Aboriginal's sacred rock, they call it Uluru, and pretty much all of Australia has adopted that. Well, it's a fabulously rich culture, an ancient culture. It uh, dates back 40,000 years. And increasingly, there are more and more Indigenous-run tours that you can go on. Catching some Indigenous dance would be an essential experience, um, experiencing some of their music, which often includes didgeridoos. Indigenous art in Sydney, the Art Gallery of New South Wales, has some fantastic galleries dedicated exclusively to Indigenous art. 
Charles, it seems like if you if you do Sydney and you fly right to Ayers Rock or Uluru, every other tourist is going to do the same thing. You're going to be on this big rock in the middle of a desert with a bunch of tourists standing around looking at the sunrise. <laughs> Actually, the local Aboriginals in uh, Central Australia, they, they don't climb the rock. It's a sacred site for them. And they request that tourists don't climb it either. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, this doesn't stop a lot of people from doing that. But you're right. There, there is a, a bit of a beaten trail in Australia in terms of the way people experience the place when they come here. And to get around that, you know, avoiding the, the tourist traps... It's a big enough place to do that. You just need to get off the beaten trail a bit and put the guidebook away and uh, do a bit of exploring. There's a lot of small towns out there which don't get a lot of tourists through. But it's certainly a big enough place to accommodate everybody. Yeah, I, I do want to say that even though Uluru may be on everybody's tourist itinerary, go to Uluru. Whatever else you do, it is the most amazing place. It emanates sacredness. It is so incredibly a powerful place. And then rather than climbing up it, just walk around with a local Aboriginal guide and let him tell you about the different stories there. And it's incredibly powerful. Yeah, I agree. I actually flew into Alice Springs. I rented a car and drove. That was fantastic for me because I got the experience of driving in the outback, which Hmm. is really singular. You get out there and you look all around you. There's scrub brush and then there's just vast, flat, open land. And you just go through that land. It's a little arid uh, there are flies, but there is something magnificent about the serenity and the stillness. And then at the end of that road, like the prize at the end, is that vast red rock monolith just glowing there. It's one of the most spectacular drives on the whole planet. Is that right? Uh, yeah. The, the road just goes straight as far as you wow. can see. But there are kangaroos all around you. Kangaroos? Kangaroos. I've heard it's dangerous at night. You don't drive at night. You absolutely do not drive at night because they're going to boing right in front of your car without you realizing it. So they actually uh, boing like they a boing. <laughs> boing, boing, they go boing, boing, boing. boing. Exactly. Like, they really almost do. like the cartoons. That must be a, that must be a hoot. You're driving through the middle oh. of nowhere and you've got these kangaroos everywhere. Everywhere. It's extraordinary for an American to look out and see. Wait a minute. All these there are kangaroos here, and and not only are they here, they're all over the place. After you've seen your 50th kangaroo, you begin to go, okay, oh, another kangaroo. Oh, I love it. I love it. And at night, it actually is dangerous. So you people, do not drive at night. It people really is don't dangerous. drive at night. The You're going to hit a kangaroo. The last boing. And they're big enough that they boing you pretty hard. Well, so. it's like hitting a deer in the United States, I it suppose, is, except deers deer. don't boing. Exactly. <laughs> um, and you're right. If you do head out at night in the outback, it's actually advised not to drive great distances at night because kangaroos are everywhere and they really will make a mess of your renter vehicle. Aren't they considered just pests, like, like, why don't we just start shooting them all? Uh, not really. Sometimes they do reach proportions that, you know, that could perhaps warrant the pest uh, <laughs> moniker. But they're, um, yeah, they're endearing creatures too, you know, people like the look of them. So they're the national icon, so it, it never really gets to culling stage, I don't think. It's pretty amazing the first time you see a kangaroo boing, boing, boinging <laughs> through the outback. It's... It's really astonishing. And then after you've seen it about 25 times, you get pretty used to the kangaroos. More about Australia with Charles and Don in just a moment. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting an inside look at Australia from Lonely Planet author Charles Rawlings Way, who's joining us from Australia, and from their former global editor, Don George. And while Sydney's getting ready right now for one of Australia's biggest parties, that's its gay Mardi Gras celebration, in a little while, we'll get in the spirit of the New Orleans version of Mardi Gras. So there's just 20 million people on this in this vast country. That's right. I understand most of them are gathered right in the southeast coast. That's exactly right. The, by far, the preponderance of the population is in a one coastal stretch along the southeast. So you have vast tracts of open land with almost no one there. And of the 20 million Australians on this continent the size of the United States, uh, what percent of them would you estimate, Charles, are on the east coast? Sydney's a huge city. I think it's approaching 5 million. Uh, Melbourne's approaching 4 million. Brisbane's about 2 million nearly. Wow, so more than half of the Australians are in those three big cities. Now, the classic East Coast route goes north from Sydney, about, what, 1,500 miles, just right along the coast. I would imagine most of the tourists are exploring that area. What's your uh, tips for that? Is that the must-see coastline? The East Coast is is gorgeous, no doubt, from um, as far north as the Daintree rainforest. You can then head south or in the other direction. Right down to Melbourne, really, the, the coastline is an absolute stunner. From Melbourne, the other classic drive is uh, heading west from Melbourne along Great Ocean Road. I've never driven it myself, but it, uh, imagine it's something like Big Sur in uh, Northern California. Mm-hmm. Huge cliffs, dramatic coastline, rampaging ocean, and uh, yeah, gorgeous little towns along the way. Let's talk about the Great Barrier Reef. Is that an easy access thing for people who aren't real serious uh, outdoors people. How does the tenderfoot really get a, a good dose of the Great Barrier Reef? Very easy access. I am not a scuba diver myself. I'm a purely a snorkeler, and I went there with my family. On our first visit, we had amazing snorkeling experiences there. So you don't have to be a hardcore undersea person by any means. If you are, there's fantastic opportunities for you as well. But you just have to get up the coast, up to Townsville. There's all sorts of uh, boats that will take you out pretty much as long or as short as you want to fit all budgets. You can have whatever kind of Great Barrier Reef experience you want. Just don't miss it. Be sure to spend at least a day there. What do you see? You see an incredible array of bright fish and uh, bright coral and, and, of course, it's a beautiful stretch of the coast as well. So you've got a beautiful beach. But uh, once you get into the water, just that vast underwater diversity comes to life right before your eyes. Is the Great Barrier Reef just immediately off the coastline, or do you have to take a boat out? You have to take a sea. You, you do have to take a boat out, but it's not that far. So it, you can get there very quickly. You can but spend you base, half a day there. you base on the mainland. There's not little right. islands out there that you would have hotels or something. Correct. Right. Okay. Isn't that sort of the goal when you take the classic East Coast route from Sydney north? You go along the beach, uh, what, about 1,500 miles or something, and you've got a number of great attractions, and the culmination would be the Great Barrier Reef? That's right. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary drive up the coast. You can actually begin, let's say, in Melbourne, because Melbourne is a, a fantastic cosmopolitan city. Drive up the coast, you pass through Sydney, another wonderful city, very much worth a few days. And then you get up to Brisbane, you go up the coast all the way to Cairn. Um, You're going to see most of Australia's population that way, but you'll also see a rich diversity of, you'll get the cosmopolitan pleasures of the cities, you'll get the beautiful beaches, some stunning scenery as you get farther north. It's A lot of the best of Australia you can get in that slice, but then you've got to get inland as well to get the other Australia. And if you fly to Ayers Rock or Uluru, that's your surgical kind of strike. You'd fly into there because it's a a longer than a casual drive. Yeah. Okay, so we're talking about the outback. We're talking about Tasmania. We talked about all the beaches and the Great Rock. What about just cosmopolitan modern Sydney? Well, Sydney was uh, propelled onto the, the world stage with the 2000 Olympics which were a huge success and a huge boon for the city as well. It really lifted Sydney and Australia's profile. It's a very multicultural city, which informs the food scene. The food in, in Australia in general is a bit like Californian food, I suppose. It's kind of a fusion with Asian influences and techniques over the top of a, a European sort of foundation. So a lot of seafood, as you'd expect, with such a coastal community. Australian seafood is right up there with the best in the world. Sydney is an amazing cosmopolitan city, an extraordinary collection of diverse cultures. 
My first trip there, I was shocked, and I think a lot of Americans are, by just how many different ethnic backgrounds are all in that city living very harmoniously. It's ethnic fantastic. backgrounds meaning Europeans or Aboriginals? Or? Uh, Europeans from you know the stretch of Europe, really. It's, it's, uh, there'll be a shop with a Greek-Australian and then an Albanian-Australian and then a British-Australian. So you've got all of these different Australians, but from such a rich diversity of cultures. Criminals from every country in <laughs> Europe. Is that right? That's right. I mean, our Statue of Liberty said, give me your, your weak and huddled masses. Right. And in Australia, it was really just dump your criminals here. Isn't that That's how it started? they did. That is how it started. You can still see the old traditional jail right on the water in Sydney. I'm speaking with Don George and Charles Rawlings Way. These men uh, contribute to the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Australia. Now, we've talked about the Aboriginal uh, culture, or at least some of the, the sites that people see that relate to that. Is there a, a sizable part of the community that's Aboriginal, and, and what are the relations between them and the uh, ethnic Europeans that are in Australia? I don't think that the indigenous population is more than um, perhaps 2% of the Australian community. When Europeans arrived in the late 1700s, there were an estimated million uh, indigenous people across the country, huh. but those numbers have decreased dramatically. They haven't fared well as Europeans they haven't. shipped um, all disease their convicts down there. was a huge problem, smallpox and the like. Plus, they systematically were dispossessed of their lands, which had huge and profound effects on their, right. their society, uh, which has a, a, a deep connection to the land. Yeah, it's a small percentage, but is prominent. As I mentioned, the artistic scene is, is vigorous. The dance, indigenous dance, is big. There's a, uh, a dance company in Sydney called Bangara from the Torres Strait to the north of Queensland. Right. They tour the world with their blend of Western techniques and indigenous heritage that they draw upon. So if a traveler wants to experience the very best of Aboriginal culture, you're pretty much uh, limited to just seeing it on stage in a sort of a tourist show, aren't you? Unless you go out to the outback, and uh, as Don mentioned earlier, you can take a tour of Uluru with uh, indigenous guides, which is right. really rewarding. You get a lot more information on the culture and their religious beliefs. If you can see some of the Aboriginal rock art in its in situ setting, up in some of the northern uh, the national parks, that that's really spectacular. Mm, definitely, Kakadu National Park yep. in Ka- the Northern Territory. Charles, in your book, you say that the outback offers sublime isolation. What do you mean by that, and how do you get it? Well, one of the the stunning things about the outback, the weather there is incredibly dry. It's desert, largely, central Australia. And there are no clouds, so at night you get the most sublime, is the right word, starscapes. The entire sky from horizon to horizon just filled with stars. No pollution, no lights to detract from that effect, so... That is transforming hmm. and really uh, quite a, a powerful situation. Now, I read there's also transforming flies, like really fierce flies <laughs> and insects. <laughs> these, are, these are like legendary in their ferocity. What's the deal with these flies in Australia? They, uh, I don't want a dent guidebook sales here, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> they do tend to, to swarm. And traditionally, the way Australians got around this was to dangle wine corks from the brim of their broad hat on strings, which would not look particularly attractive, but would, would manage to deter the, the flies from getting in your face too much. So you must see some Americans dolled up like Crocodile Dundee with big knives and these hats <laughs> with, with wine corks dangling in front of their faces. Yeah. Tell me about this. You're, you're an Australian, Charles. You know, all we know about Australia is Crocodile Dundee. Does that create these gargantuan misperceptions and people fly in and they're looking for some guy who's going to wrestle alligators? <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, the situation not helped by uh, the late Steve Irwin, uh, rest in peace, who was, you know, a charming guy. But the, the way he, his Australian form of expression is something that also leads to a lot of misconceptions. Most Australians don't talk like Steve Irwin and don't carry knives. And uh, I doubt any of them have, have seen crocodiles lately. It's a bit of a myth. But you all call each other mate, don't you? We do, yeah. That's, that's the standard form of address. G'day, mate. How's it going? Girls and boys? Yeah, yeah, across the board. Now, is, is there like a language barrier? Uh, I, I think a, a Kiwi can recognize an Aussie by the slang, right? That's right. There's a, a distinct slang culture here. Confuse me. Teach me a little of the vernacular. Uh, 
Well, if if you wanted to uh, tell someone to to go away, you'd tell them to to bugger off. If you thought they were uh, an idiot of some kind, you, you might call them a flaming galah. A galah is a kind of bird, which is uh, <laughs> kind of comical. Uh, if you're busy, you might say you're flat out, or flat out like a lizard drinking, which is a, a comical expression. Is there a lot of ways to say inebriated? Yeah, yeah. Pissed is the the common one. Um, Australians have a fearsome reputation for their alcohol intake. And the pub culture here is certainly alive and well. So you might meet a few flaming galahs in, in the Australian pubs. <laughs> Pissed and flaming galahs. And no yeah. no worries is something you hear no worries, everywhere. Mate. No worries, mate. No worries, mate. What's ridgy ditch? Is that a word, ridgy ditch? Ridgy ditch means, you know, that's that's solid. That's That's good. That's fine by me. Box of fluffy ducks. <laughs> I think box of fluffy I ducks. Heard is, that one. That's actually New Zealand. That's I think. New Zealand. <laughs> okay. okay, we got all this, uh, you know, mate and all this heavy drinking stuff. But actually, my hunch is uh, the typical Australian is probably like the typical suburban American uh, does more uh, watching sports on TV than actually doing it. Adventure sports might be walking their dog and probably uh, statistically just as overweight as Americans. Uh, does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think. Obesity, particularly childhood obesity, is an increasing problem here. That said, Australians are quite active. Essentially, we're an enormous island surrounded by water, and the beaches are fantastic. Australians love to surf, they love to sail, they love to windsurf, and um, they love swimming. So the beach culture encourages people to be active. We're talking about Australia. This is a, a huge, diverse, and I think misunderstood subcontinent, basically. I would imagine one of the most endearing things about visiting Australia is just somehow connecting with the people. Uh, what's your best advice for me coming to Australia, making sure I, I get to know the locals? Well, we're, we're a friendly bunch, mate. <laughs> so I would, I'd suggest just go to the pub, you know, have a couple of beers and get chatting with some people. So to meet the the real Australians, you dress up like Crocodile Dundee, right? <laughs> you have a that's big right, knife and you right. wear a funny hat. Uh-huh. You have cork With dangling cork from your bim to, to keep right. the flies away. That's it. Now, that must be so obnoxious for the Australians to see an American coming in and, and kind of going, hey, mate, and dressed like, <laughs> right. is there this Crocodile Dundee? shrimp on the Barbie. Right. Is, yeah. that, is there that uh, preconception or, or, or do people actually find that when they go out back? You don't find too much of that. And Australians are fun-loving enough that they understand the whole stereotype and they will sort of run with it for a while. But really what you find in Australia is a very gregarious, fun-loving populace who will go out of their way to talk to strangers. So I've always found as a, as a traveler there, it's a remarkably easy place to meet locals. You just go into a pub or you go into a tea house and you just start to chat up the people around you and you make instant friends. So what is your best tip for the American visiting Australia? Don't have any friends necessarily, but you want to make some. Go to a pub and start talking to people. Same as in Britain, then. A pub is a public house, community living room. Yes, and everybody opens up and they'll adopt you right away. I find that if you sit at the table, that's not saying you want to talk as much, but if you sit at the bar, that's where people go to to really connect. So you sit at the bar, you're going to have people talking to you. Everyone, from the the bar keep to the, the people walking in around you. Before the end of the night, people will be buying you beers and slapping you on the back and singing Waltzing Matilda and... It'll be, it, they really are so incredibly open. I, I really love the Australian people. Their spirit is just so generous. And they've got that frontier spirit that we have, but with a dose of something zany and, and kind of we can conquer whatever and we're going to have a good time doing it, which is quite wonderful. Well, probably has a whole mix, actually going all the way back to their criminal heritage right. and, and great frontier feeling and the right. vast expanses and so on. And there's a camaraderie down there, and everybody calls everybody mate. Isn't that right? That's right, mate. That's, hey, mate. That's not a, <laughs> and you can pick up on that as a tourist? No worries, mate. No worries. <laughs> the other thing you can do is go to a sports match, especially an Australian rules football match, which is absolutely confounding. Don't try to understand it. Just go and enjoy the spectacle. Wow. <laughs> do what the locals do. Go to a football match. And you're, you're rubbing shoulders with Australians who are probably really into the game. Yes, and you'd better be cheering for the same team that the people around you are cheering for or you're going to be in big trouble. Okay, observe. Do as the locals do <laughs> exactly. for, your own, for your own safety. Australian football is, is an amazing game. It's uh, kind of a hybrid of Irish Gaelic football mixed with a bit of rugby and a bit of soccer. And it's uh, supremely athletic and a nationwide competition. So if you can get along to a football match, you'll meet a lot of rabid 
uh, sports fan Australians who are yelling their heads off and, and uh, aren't shy of uh, a conversation. So, yeah, do what the locals do. So no worries, but you're hungry. Can you get pub grub in the pubs just like you'd find in Britain? You can get very good pub grub. They have really interesting sandwiches, a whole variety of sandwiches with all kinds of uh, you know, standard ham and turkey meat, but also you can occasionally find emu or kangaroo. Kangaroo? Mm-hmm. What's that taste like? I hate to say it, but kind of like chicken, actually. <laughs> Just a chicken. All right. <laughs> it's pretty, actually, kangaroo is pretty good. All right. And uh, in the pubs, they basically, it, it's the same beer sort of orientation, or is it more um, uh, well drinks? Uh, no, beer orientation. Beer. Yeah. Aussies are good beer drinkers. Aussies are big beer drinkers. That's their image, and that's the truth. That's huh? the truth. As far as expenses go, is uh, would it be about the same as the United States? Cities are comparable to cities in the U.S. You get out in the outback, and it's comparable to, say, the Midwest. All right. Sounds like you enjoy it. I love Australia. There's so many pleasures there of all kinds. There's the visual, but then the, the just the people, too, the, the tapestry of backgrounds and and it sounds the spirit like is fantastic. No real stress. There really isn't very much stress. I mean, that's what I love about that expression, no worries, mate. That's a national expression that everybody says, and it seems to be quite true. They have a great escape valve of, of relieving pressure by enjoying life. Now, does that all go out the window when you get into the high-powered big city Sydney, or, or do you have that same sort of charm even in an urban uh, package? Even in an urban package like Sydney, it is certainly more high-powered than the outback, but it's not it's not a stressful place at all. And there are some magnificent day trips that you can take. You can take a ferry out to Manly, for example, which is a quite exclusive and beautiful suburb. And you go through the Sydney Harbor, you, you go by the Opera House, one of the most beautiful buildings. Glorious building the from the water. Must be nice to it's cruise by. It's fantastic. It's just a winged building that seems to be taking off. And then you see uh, uh, beautiful houses along the coast, and then you reach this wonderful port suburb. And things like that are something that Sydneyites do all the time. Not, not so many travelers do them. So this is a great way to mingle with locals have a fantastic day trip out uh, to the environs, and then come back refreshed for more urban pleasures. Now, would Australia be more or less conservative than the United States? I, I've seen in Sydney they have this huge gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. Uh, is that really an anomaly? Would that just be in the big city? Uh, what are the people's basic outlooks? Uh, quite similar to the U.S., I would say. For, uh, somewhat conservative. Uh, the gay and lesbian celebration is huge and draws people from all over, not just Australia, even from outside Australia. Uh, but something like San Francisco's gay and lesbian celebration. So it's, it's a bit of an anomaly in terms of the country as a whole. But within the urban centers, especially Melbourne and Sydney, there's a remarkable tolerance and, and so, range of... Crocodile opinions. Dundee could come in there and go, no worries, mate. He could. <laughs> he probably does. <laughs> Charles Rawlingsway, Don George, Lonely Planet Guide to Australia. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rick. Okay, no worries. Up next, Lonely Planet's Jay Cook tells us what Mardi Gras in New Orleans is really like and why it's such an important part of that city's identity. Laissez le bon temps brûler. That's Let the Good Times Roll, right here on Travel with Rick Steves. People are celebrating Carnival all over the world right now, and no city knows how to throw a Mardi Gras party quite like New Orleans. In a moment, we'll hear from a listener who explains the recovery of New Orleans from the point of view of a small business in the French Quarter. But first, let's start with Lonely Planet editor Jay Cook, whose love of New Orleans includes a detailed understanding of what Mardi Gras is all about. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. It's Mardi Gras season, and we're joined by Jay Cook, who edits the Lonely Planet Guide to New Orleans. Jay, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks. Glad to be here. I suppose if you're going to really experience New Orleans... Mardi Gras would be the time to put on your calendar. Yeah, it's definitely one of the top two times of the year to visit. Uh, the other one would be the, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, which is in April or May. But my first time in New Orleans was for Mardi Gras. And safe to say, uh, I'll never forget it. <laughs> now, Mardi Gras is Fat Tuesday, literally. And that's the day before Ash Wednesday, which kicks off Lent. Do I have that right? That is correct. Fat Tuesday. It's funny because... You know that you've reached Ash Wednesday and that Mardi Gras is over when at midnight on Mardi Gras itself, 
as the last parade comes down Bourbon Street, it's followed by the street sweepers and the police telling everybody, okay, Party's go over. home. <laughs> Party's go over. Go home. Yeah. I find it very interesting to look at this in a historical and church history kind of way and then uh, in many different cultures. I guess wherever Roman Catholicism was dominant, we've got this carnival in Europe, carnival down in Rio. And in Europe, historically, Lent was a very austere time. In order for people to get through Lent, I guess they just had to let it all hang out in this wild and crazy time just before Lent. And that's where we get our carnival. Uh, I guess literally the word carnival means farewell to flesh. What's your take on how New Orleans has this sort of uh, focus these days? Well, it's good to remember the European influences on New Orleans. This was a French territory, and it wasn't until the Louisiana Purchase of Thomas Jefferson in uh, 1803 that it became part of America. And before this city was part of America, it had already established its tradition of Carnival, which is exactly what you said. I think in a lot of ways, too, with the timing in the South, it's also a welcome to spring. Uh, It doesn't get super cold down there, but it is winter. Traditionally, there have been costume balls, and it was sort of a society thing. After New Orleans became part of America and and the 19th century ran on, it just sort of grew into a tradition. So the society thing, would there be a parallel aristocratic kind of celebration going on, or is everybody out in the streets getting rowdy? Yeah, it's a a good question. You know, in the early days, I think that some of Mardi Gras was a little bit more of the higher classes, if you will. But at the same time, the regular folks, they also were having their celebrations as well. And today's Mardi Gras, what you really see is over 200 years, all classes of society have their traditions that have blended together into the current Mardi Gras. I'm thinking specifically right now about the Mardi Gras Indians who uh, evolved from the, a lot of the African-American folks that lived down there. They would dress up like Indians and have their own parades around town. Now they're a part of the main Mardi Gras itself, along with all the other crews in the city. Now, the Mardi Gras season is certainly more than Fat Tuesday. It goes for nearly a month, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. You know, some people tell me that Mardi Gras starts on New Year's Eve. Uh, I've also heard that whenever there's a Super Bowl that happens in New Orleans, and it's clearly the best city in America for a Super Bowl, then then Mardi Gras season kind of starts then. But traditionally, it's about 10 or 12 days before Fat Tuesday, and it's marked by parades all over the city and people welcoming their friends to stay. Now, if you're going to be in New Orleans for Mardi Gras, you want to be there specifically on Fat Tuesday, I would imagine. How do you plan your day? Eat a good breakfast, for starters. I think the key for Mardi Gras is to pace yourself, frankly. My first time going there, I was 21 years old, and I don't think I paced myself very well. And I know that by Saturday of the weekend before Mardi Gras, I was was kind of done. But I think that if you arrive at your parade route early and get a good spot— Bring a little chair and wait for the party to come to you. Because if if you prepare your spot and you let the floats come your way, you will be so far ahead of all the other people that arrive late and try to catch up. Because really what Mardi Gras is all about is the throws. The throws are the varying objects that the crews driving floats toss into the crowds. And it's very interesting how different objects have higher merit or social value than others. Get a coconut. Now, a crew is a social club, and their sort of reason to be together is to make a float. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's safe to say that their reasons to be together is is just to be a social club in general. It's really amazing. The process of making the floats is fantastic. One of my favorite places in New Orleans, and it's a little under the radar because it's across the Mississippi River in Algiers, which is the neighborhood of New Orleans, but disconnected. But this is called Blaine Kern's Mardi Gras World. And it's a big warehouse where people build their floats. And it survived Katrina totally fine. In fact, Blaine Kern was one of the first people that started saying in the week afterwards, okay, we need to come back and we must have a Mardi Gras. But if you go to his warehouse there, you can see people actually building these floats. It's very wide open and it's really amazing because the floats are incredibly designed. So you can actually tour this place any time of year? Yeah, no problem. In fact, I had friends that visited there, I'd say, four months ago, and they were able to walk in, and all they saw was one person working on a float saying, do you mind if we walk around? And they said, yeah, go ahead. In fact, even let them climb up into the floats and take pictures of each other. It's very laid back. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're getting ready for Mardi Gras. We're talking about New Orleans with the man who edits the Lonely Planet Guide to New Orleans. His name is Jay Cook. Jay, you talked about the throw. 
and we all hear about the beads and so on and the girls that are showing their breasts. How does all that come together? Well, the throws are the various objects that people get when they're on the parade routes during the day. Basically what happens is you have parades by day and debauchery by night. The debauchery happens down at Bourbon Street, and it's kind of confined to there. And in terms of the women showing their breasts, that's definitely a part of the tradition. I think it's really important to keep in mind that it's not a requirement to to do this, to enjoy Mardi Gras. In fact, a lot of people go down to New Orleans and steer totally clear of Bourbon Street, which is fun, but really is a, a tourist spot. So that's kind of the crass, over-the-top climax of all this Mardi Gras activity is on Bourbon Street after dark. Is that where you get this debauchery that people hear about? Yeah, it's kind of Times Square at New Year's Eve or right. something like that. It, it Crass is a good word for it. It's it's a fun thing to go check out a little bit, but it is absolutely not, not a requirement to have a really great time there. In fact, what a lot of my friends that live in New Orleans do is they treat Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest to a lesser extent, but mostly Mardi Gras. That's when they open their homes to people and say, hey, okay, let's go out and do the parades. And then at night they cook and they huh. cook for their friends and then everybody has parties in their homes. Jazz Fest is a little different because in addition to having multiple stages of live music all day, in the evening people go out to the different nightclubs to see more music. Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras is more of a, of a homecoming, if you will. So the, the real essence of Mardi Gras can be misunderstood when people just look at the uh, news broadcasts of it around the United States. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it's no different. All those cameras are going to be set up at the intersection of Bourbon and Toulouse, and the whole city isn't going to be like that. It's an amazing financial boost for the city, and I know that in the first Mardi Gras afterwards, they had 700,000 people. Safe to say they're, they're not all congregating down on Bourbon Street. That was the first Mardi Gras after Katrina? Yes. Usually they crest a million, but they were happy with 700,000. I mean, you have to remember this was still literally five or six months after the the hurricane and, and city services were still scattered and a lot of the hotels were offline. So they were very happy with those numbers. Mm -hmm. On that first Mardi Gras after Katrina, I heard there was even some dark humor. People are actually starting to be a laugh a little bit about the situation. The FEMA float, I heard, arrived a day late. Kudos to the people that came up with that one. And that speaks a lot to what New Orleans is all about. It's about being able to turn adversity into humor because what's the fun in life if we just are always dour and down? I mean, there's turbulence and trouble everywhere, but if we can't find a, a, a way past that with laughter and conviviality, you know, why go on? I think that would be essential for the resurrection of New Orleans. I would imagine the police are standing by and an expert at keeping an eye on the craziness but not throwing a wet blanket on everything. How do the police manage the situation? You know, it's funny. One of the difficulties for the New Orleans Police Department is staffing. They just don't have as many people. They, they lost a number of people that left and never came back, so they're short-staffed. Because of that, they've restricted the parade routes. Traditionally, they would wind more through the neighborhoods. Now, most of the parade routes are going down St. Charles, which is in the Garden District. Some of the crews were upset about that. They, Especially the first Mardi Gras, they wanted to go past the devastated areas. But for a security reason, because they couldn't really patrol all the perimeters, they had to keep it confined. And personally, I, I don't think that's a bad idea at this point. Mm -hmm. That would make sense, I'd think, with the limited police force. Uh, Mardi Gras has been described as principally a, a celebration for the youth. Is that true? Is there a Mardi Gras for the children? The, the pure joy of the parade is it totally speaks to the children that are there. You're talking about beads and little plastic cups and little noisemakers and coconuts and colors and masks and people on stilts. I mean, kids are going to eat that stuff up. My first time in Mardi Gras, I was actually very uh, surprised at the difference between the daytime experience, which is quite wholesome, and the nighttime experience, which mm, I wouldn't call wholesome. <laughs> okay, so there's a tip for parents. If, you, if you're bringing your kids to New Orleans, uh, enjoy the parade during the day. Exactly. You know, and it's funny, too, because one of the things about New Orleans as well, in general, it's a great place to bring the children. They've got fantastic aquarium there and they've got a wonderful park and they've got the Audubon Zoo as well. So, you know, before Katrina, people were really starting to focus on New Orleans as a destination for children. And I think going forward, you're going to find more and more of that as a possibility, too. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jay Cook, who edits the Lonely Planet Guide to New Orleans. If you can take us to New Orleans right now, give us a, a, a hint of the magic that stole your heart about New Orleans. If I were to go to New Orleans right now, I think the first thing I'd want to do would be to go to Café du Monde and get a Café au lait and a beignet. What I like about New Orleans is that the quote-unquote tourist traps are worth the trip. 
I'd eat that for breakfast. Then I'd stroll a little bit along the Mississippi and try to see some of the riverboats. Then I'd go over to the Louisiana Music Factory, which is my favorite record and music store in the world. And I'd probably spend $100 or so on CDs after listening to them in the booths. And then uh, after that, I'd probably just follow the next sidewalk through the French Quarter and really just let the city wash over me because that's the kind of city it is. Jay, it sounds like New Orleans is rising again. It sounds like Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras is certainly alive and well. And it sounds like you can enjoy the spirit of Mardi Gras any time of year. Well, for me, the spirit of New Orleans lives on in its music. It always has. It always will. And the last time I was there, one of the happiest moments for me was to realize that Vaughn's in the Bywater was still around. Vaughn's is an old jazz joint, and it's far removed from the standard tourist areas. And yet every Thursday, the trumpeter Kermit Ruffins, he plays his set out there at Vaughn's. It's a great scene. And then the set breaks, and everybody goes out to Kermit's pickup truck where he's got his barbecue going, and he just sits there and dishes out barbecue for everybody out there in the middle of the street between sets. You, you sit there, and you, you eat the food that the musician has cooked and given to you, and then you go back in to hear another set of great music. That's New Orleans in a nutshell to me. Wow, New Orleans lives. That's good news. And as tourists, we can contribute to the rebuilding of that city and enjoy its resilient culture at the same time by putting it on your list for a vacation sometime soon. Come on, New Orleans! Last year at this time, we chatted with one of our listeners, Nicole LeBlanc, at the hat shop she worked at in the French Quarter of New Orleans. Nicole explained how important tourism is to the city's recovery. Here's a refresher. Nicole LeBlanc, who sells hats at a shop called the Fleur de Paris in the middle of the uh, French Quarter, emailed us. She's excited about getting people back to New Orleans, and we've got her on the phone. Nicole, thanks for joining us. Hi there. You've been selling hats, what, for over 20 years now in the French Quarter? Yes, I've been here almost 24 years, and the store has been here since May of 1980. Now, New Orleans really is heavily dependent on tourism. What's it like for you now in these little shops in the French Quarter after Katrina? Everybody is kind of in the same boat. We all have so many out-of-town clients, and they're just not visiting like they used to. So you're trying to hang in there until things come back, and your business must really take a critical spike during uh, Mardi Gras. It actually starts to take a spike right around Mardi Gras, but mostly right after Mardi Gras because we get into Lent, which is when people start thinking about the Easter hat. Oh, that's right. And we have a number of special events, very famous events here in New Orleans during the spring, French Quarter Fest, which is in the middle of April, and Jazz Fest, of course, which is the end of April, beginning of May. So we stay busy right through the middle of February through May. So you have hats for the various high points in the holiday calendar, then? Yes, we do a booming Kentucky Derby business, needless to say. So that between Eastern Kentucky Derby, we'll be just about ready to drop by the beginning of May. Are Southern Bells still wearing hats like they do in the old movies? Oh, absolutely. I've got one coming in for her Mardi Gras hat. Really? Every year a different Mardi Gras hat? Yes, and we do a lot of hats for the young ladies who were the maids and the queens on Mardi Gras. They dress up in suits to toast the king uh, at the parade. I'm talking with Nicole LeBlanc, the head salesperson at a little hat shop called Fleur de Paris in the middle of the French Quarter. Nicole, did you attend Mardi Gras in 2006? I did, and it was absolutely wonderful. Why would it be wonderful as the first Mardi Gras after Katrina? Well, first of all, it was such an emotional release for everybody. We really needed to celebrate and be just like we are normally at Mardi Gras. The parades were extra satirical, and they just were not as crowded. So you've got a really great view of all the floats. You caught more throws. So it was really delightful, and I think probably a little more crowded this year. So you get a little elbow room there in the streets during the parades. Yeah, and that's always nice. And there's not a heavy sort of sad pall over the whole festivities? Not really. Even though the businesses are struggling? No, everybody's looking forward to it. We all know that's the start of our busy season. When people are coming to uh, New Orleans, what does a business person like you think about tourists that come in to take the devastation tours, the little bus tours that take you through the devastated zones? You know, when I first heard about those not long after the hurricane, I had mixed feelings. I was kind of offended. And then I started to think about it. You cannot understand the level of the devastation unless you see it in person. And I felt like 
people need to know how bad it is in those parts of the city. Those are not parts of the city that tourists would normally go to. They're just the neighborhoods, your little neighborhood businesses. It's not the Garden District. It's not the French Quarter. And it's amazing that there's been not very much progress. It still looks pretty bad a lot of places, but I don't want people to forget that even though they're here having a great time, right. seeing all the beautiful architecture, eating all the great food, and listening to the great music, I don't want people to forget that there are still a lot of people here who need help. So you could conceivably wing into New Orleans, have a great time, be oblivious to any of the devastation and sadness that's just a little bit out of the center of town, and go home and actually learn very little. Or you could come in, have a great time, spend some money, support the shops, and take a half-day bus tour into the devastated area and learn something at the same time. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, and I think that that's good for people. I think I would agree with that. Are there quality little bus tour companies that do a good job of this? There are a number of them, and actually, in most cases that I've read and heard about, quite a few of the drivers lost their homes themselves. So in addition to getting a driver talking you through the tour, you're getting the personal perspective of someone whose own home was devastated with a lot of these drivers. So, and anybody coming into New Orleans, will they be able to find locally through their hotels uh, Absolutely. when Just and where these tours go? Check with the concierge at your hotel. They should have all the information. Hey, Nicole, do men buy hats in your shop? We only have ladies' hats. I'm a milliner, so I really only do ladies' hats. Okay. There is a wonderful men's hat store in New Orleans called Meyer the Hatter that's been here about 100 years. And your place is Fleur de Paris. Fleur de Paris. And Paris. Nicole LeBlanc, thank you very much, and best wishes, and we're all pulling for New Orleans. Come on down. We will. Thanks. Bye now. Bye. It seems that Nicole's plea for tourists to help rebuild the city's economy is being heard. Two bowl games and an early Mardi Gras this year are helping to bring tourism back closer to pre-Katrina levels. Nicole tells us that the bus tours continue to take visitors out to see just how far New Orleans still has to go to rebuild the neighborhoods flooded by Katrina. And business is picked up at the Fleur de Paris hat shop, which has now moved to a larger location down Royal Street. Nicole reminds us that a trip to her hometown of New Orleans is always a pleasure. Happy Mardi Gras. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Happy travels. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.